Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to King of the Ride podcast. I'm your host, I'm Ted King. This is episode number 124. Nielsen Paulus is our guest today. Nielsen burst onto the scene to many cycling fans in his 2020 debut Tour de France as it was noticed at that time that he was the first tribally recognized native North American to race the Tour de France. A, that is enormously noteworthy. B, that was hardly when Nielsen burst onto the scene. At that point, he had already won here in North America stages of Redlands and Tour Beauce, stages of Lavenir, which is the youth Tour de France. He'd helped Primoz Roglic with the Vuelta the previous year, and then starts storming the professional cycling scene. He has since won San Sebastian, Japan Cup, the overall at Etois-Bessege, GP Marseille, third place at Dours Dor Vlandren, and fifth at Flanders. Many top tens elsewhere. He's worn the polka dot jersey for the Tour de France in the majority of the 2023 Tour de France. Yes, that Nielsen Palace. Lots and lots to talk about today, so stay tuned. Hey, in other news, on the heels of a very well-received AMA Ask Me Anything podcast, where Laura and I chit-chat about life, our lives separately and together, we thought we would start a new podcast. Yes, that is just what you need, another podcast. Seriously, though, if you enjoyed this conversation, I think you're going to find this new one entertaining as well. A different format than here on King of the Ride. To keep you on your toes, the two of us will team up with our very dear friend, Stu Streeter. We're going to talk about what's going on in the gravel world, our travels, our family, the contemporary and changing state of gravel, tech in gravel, and naturally, plenty more. So the name of the podcast is Gravel Kings. Check it out. Gravel Kings podcast. Put that into your favorite podcast app. Look for it. I will try to link into the show notes here as well. We would be thrilled to have you on board. Hey, question. What'd you do this morning? Like, first thing, what'd you do today? Wake up, check your phone, make coffee, check cycling news. I don't know about you, but when I roll out of bed, I walk downstairs, and before the King household is woken up, I start my day with a serving of AG1. A friend introduced it to me, I want to say three, four years ago. No, I didn't first hear about it in a podcast advertisement. And since starting off those many years ago, I've relied on it to help me feel energized, hydrated, and ready to roll every morning. It is simple. It's one scoop into the handy shaker, and that daily delivery of AG1 makes me feel like I've already got a head start on the day. I've set things into motion to be in control of my nutrition, my activity, right from the get-go, and that's because AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre- and probiotics, and much, much more, all derived from real foods. So here it is. If there's one product I recommend to elevate your health, it is AG1, and that's why I have partnered them for so many years now. If you want to take ownership over your health, start it with AG1. That is, get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 plus five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase just by visiting drinkag1.com slash tedking. Drinkag1.com slash tedking. That's it. Check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Nielsen Paulus to the podcast. Kicking things off, um, massive, massive congratulations. I want to say maybe last fall, sometime early fall, you became a dad. Is that is that accurate? It is. Last September, September 23rd, um, my daughter Charlotte was born, and um, yeah, life will never be the same. <laughs> <laughs> That's very accurate. Um, so overarching early question, what... What has been, how has the first chapter of Parent Good gone? It's been great. Um, you know, definitely hard, hard sometimes, but just so rewarding and like makes you feel that you're kind of doing something bigger than um, what kind of matters on a day to day level. On, like what's going on in your life, you're kind of like, I don't know. It puts everything into perspective, I guess. And, um, it's just been so motivating and rewarding and, um, 
yeah, it's been an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> she's, uh, she's already a well, well-traveled little baby. Uh-huh. Oh, well, exactly. I mean, remind me where you're based in Europe. Uh, we are based in Nice, France. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Um, yeah. So like first round of everything that's going on, you've got the first time being a dad to go to team camp. You got races coming up, moving back across over to Europe is no small feat. How, how has that process gone as a group of three instead of a group of two? Like, has it presented its hiccups? Has it been flawless? What's the, <laughs> what's the mode of operation right now? Um, I think it's gone as about as well as one could expect. We, you know, we, we were, we were anticipating it being a bit more difficult and it definitely was, but, um, all things considered, you know, she got used to the time zone quite fast. Um, she didn't scream the whole flight, which was great. Right. 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 Um, and she's sort of adapted to our life here and we've kind of fit her into our life here very seamlessly. I want to say, um, I'd say we're going out to eat a bit less because, uh, yeah, nighttime sometimes is uh, a struggle, but, um, yeah, I mean, we still just, yeah, we've just been taking this adventure head on and it's something we both have always wanted. So we're just really excited about the whole process and everything that's gone on so far has just been a wild ride, but, um, a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, we, so before we made the big journey to Europe, um, because Charlotte was born, uh, in, in Houston, Texas, we were there for who my wife was there. Francis was there for about five months. Oh. I was there for about four months uh-huh. and it's been all, almost six months since I've raced. So that was a very, um, privileged position to be in as a cyclist, I think, um, to be a first time father and have six months without racing, uh-huh. not because of an injury or illness, just because that's the way the schedule worked out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it couldn't have been time per time better. Um, you know, it was, it was just a lot of time planted in one place, which you don't get a lot of as a cyclist, but, um, that in and of itself was very sweet. And then throwing in just being able to be there all the time with Francis and Charlotte is just, uh, it's been great. And, uh, yeah, the team was really courteous looking out for me there and, um, once they found out I was having a baby, they kind of put that schedule together thinking that, um, it would be nice for me and it was great. (laughs) Yeah, man. Oh man. Um, that is very impressive. You hear so many stories of people who just catch the birth of their child or are, are, (laughs) you know, miss it entirely. Um, so to have that kind of timing is, is pretty that's noteworthy. That's incredible. That speaks highly of how the team sees you. I'm now far removed from the team. I raced in the slipstream operation with JV as my boss in 2015. Um, what is what is the vibe of the team now? Like you've got the circus master, ringleader, Rigo. You got lots of Latin American talent. Um, JV, of course, does a very good job. I think scouting young European talent. What is, what does the team feel like right now? Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. I feel like ever since I've been on the team, it's felt very South American. Um, You know, it's an American team, and in a sense where our team is just a melting pot, I feel like it is an American team in that way. Uh But there's only two Americans on the team. Um, And it has felt a bit more like a South American team over the last few years, but this year it's sort of begun to shift away from that. And I think we have three, only three South Americans now, three huh. or four. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, eight, what we've had in the past. Sure. Um, but the team's very young this year. Um, they hired, I mean, they even hired an 18 year old this year, which is wild. <laughs> But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think the average age for the team is, uh, you know, it's in the low twenties, which is pretty crazy. Sure. Um, but you know, everyone's excited and the team is run extremely professional at this point. Um, I don't know if you were in the, was, was Jonathan Breedfeld working in the team when you were here? 
as the sort of operations manager? No, no. Tell me about Jonathan. <laughs> um, well, essentially, when he came on board, um, from what I've heard, I, I joined the team. He was already on board, but yeah. um, he runs a tight ship. It's it's pretty impressive. That guy just knows how to keep all his ducks in a row, and he's been a very great resource for the team. And um, yeah, I think um, JV found a good one with him. And you know, everything is yeah, everything feels very dialed, very professional. And um, well, but you know, at the same time, everybody seems to be just having a good time doing what they're doing so it's it's a cool environment nice well yeah it's awesome to see i mean it's sort of the obviously the hometown team being an american um so it's it's certainly had its ebbs and flows and and fluctuations of nationalities and this and that but it's a fun team to to watch so okay you're on this call it six month hiatus from racing when do you actually kick things off next week very, very ready. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm itching to race. Yeah. Well, yeah, as the season has kicked off from a, well, obviously from a racing standpoint, I was going to say from a fan standpoint, I appreciate that we've been able to pivot the podcast to a couple different dates. And I was just waiting for you to be like, no, I'm going to be at a race or I'm at a camp. So <laughs> this has worked out in my favor. Um, all right. Let's talk a bit about family a little bit more. Um, your mom... Is it Jeanette? Uh, Jeanette, yeah. Jeanette. Okay, your mom, Jeanette, she was an Olympic marathoner. She represented Guam, I want to say, in the two, uh, 1992 Olympics. Your dad seems like he was a, a bit of a athlete across different sports and maybe getting into triathlon quite a bit. I often mm-hmm. think to what my kids will remember of me. You know, They didn't know me when I was a road racer, and now I'm in this funny gravel phase. Cycling is a central theme in our life, but who knows how long I'll be doing what I'm doing. What do you remember as a little kid about your your parents' athletic life? I just remember that they were always on the go. Um, (laughs) My parents were both coaches while I was growing up alongside, you know, my dad working as a a carpenter. He had already retired from the military by by the time I was uh, four, I want to say. So I don't really remember that too much. Yeah. Um, but once he retired from the military, he went into coaching a bit, but really kind of took over Mr. Mom role. And my mom ended up finishing her master's and got a teaching job at at a community college, uh, Mm um, close to where we lived in Sacramento. And yeah, I mean, my mom was the head women's track and field and cross country coach. And my dad was, a um, triathlon coach um, that he just had a a bunch of athletes he was coaching uh, through. And while at the same time running youth teams for my sister and I, uh, mountain bike teams, cross country teams, uh, helping out with swim team and also ran a triathlon team. So they were just doing everything all the time. Um, Looking back on it now, it actually really blows me away because I really (laughs) – don't think I'm going to have that kind of energy for, Yeah, I don't know, maybe I will if I wasn't a pro <laughs> cyclist, but um, there's no way I could do what, what they did growing up, at least where I'm at right now, because I just couldn't find the, the time in the day, like enough hours really. But um, yeah, they were always on the go, always keeping us active. I just feel like we were at the lake every Folsom Lake in, in California, just about every afternoon, even on school nights, swimming, biking and running. Yeah. And it's kind of what we did as a family. And, uh, yeah, athletics was sort of just a central theme in our family. Yeah, it seems like it seems like your story is very much these these building blocks, small building blocks where you, you progress from one to the next, like stepping stones. I get into running, get into swimming, get into Xterra. Can you? Mm-hmm. So for the sake of fleshing it out for me and the listener, can you walk me through the progression? Um and maybe not literal year by year, but how like the sports that you're getting yeah. into to ultimately get to this world tour stage. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it sort of transition. It, it, it really did shape me into the rider I am today because I did just about every sport a kid could do. Yeah. And now I'm a very well-rounded cyclist, I think, um, you know, for maybe for better or worse, because I'm, I'm not necessarily like the best at any one thing, but I'm <laughs> pretty good at a lot of things. Um, 
but you know, when I was a kid, I played soccer, basketball. Um, my, my grandpa owned a boxing gym and he wanted me to box for a while. I did that for a little bit. Um, my mom didn't want me to fight. So just, <laughs> they kind of steered me towards endurance sports. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just kind of naturally fell on triathlon, which was, you know, mountain biking, road biking, running, swimming. Um, and I raced, you know, in each of those events separately and all together throughout the year. So it was mountain bike races, whenever there was a mountain bike race, cross country races, whenever there was a cross country race, it was just every weekend we were jumping into a different type of race. Um, and that was pretty much the theme of my, like through high school. Um, even in high school, I was still on swim team. I played basketball for the first three years of high school. Um, I ran cross country. I raced NorCal high school mountain bike. Um, I raced Xterra triathlons and I started racing world cups in Europe, um, on, uh, for, for cross country mountain bike. So I had my hands in a lot of pots, yeah. um, but, but, um, I was sort of just feeling out which one would present the best opportunities. And I had pretty good opportunities from a lot of those sports. Um, but, uh, I, I was basically taken on a trip to Europe um, with the road national team when I was, I think I was 17. Um, it was my first time to Europe on the road team, like racing road races. And even though I just got my face kicked in, I had so much fun and just felt the freedom that road cycling gives you and the freedom that, you know, the travel can give you. And I just fell in love with it. And basically senior year of high school, I decided that's what I wanted to do. Um, my mom told me I had to stay in school until I turned pro. So I went to her community college for a year. And, um, at the beginning of that year, I was signed up with action Hoggins Berman. And that sort of gave me the stepping stone to show myself on a, on a bigger scale, um, in 2016, which was the tour of California. Um, luckily the team had an opportunity to race, compete in that race. And I'd had a pretty good start of the year, even though I had been in school in the afternoons and, um, performed really well in the tour of California. I got noticed by some pro teams and my parents, uh, told me that, yeah, I was free to go for it and turned pro moved to Europe and, uh, <laughs> unfortunately had to put school on the side, but, uh, um, yeah. kind of. Yeah, that's how it goes when you need to relocate to another country. <laughs> sure. Um, well, yeah, it's funny. I think of a lot of my contemporaries when I was living in Girona and they have their kids in, in the local Catalan schools. Um, so, yeah, you can be like dropping in with your with your daughter at school on occasion when she's of school age. <laughs> um, how much... I think we, we think of this current generation of young, extremely high talent coming into cycling and being very professionalized from a young age, like basically living the world tour life all through their teens from their very early teen years. So when you think back on Xterra and and running track in high school and that sort of thing, how much of your training was professionalized, was regimented, was coached versus, okay, we're just going to go run for two hours because that's what afternoon practice is. Like how, how, how regimented was it? Um, it's, it's hard to say because in my mind, it was completely chaotic. Like it was just playing every afternoon. Like I think my parents were so sneaky about the way they trained us, my sister and I, because firstly, they, they took it upon themselves to start youth teams, youth triathlon teams, youth running teams, um, youth mountain bike teams, just so basically we would have friends to do this stuff with, Uh um, Luckily, there was a big market for that. A lot of parents wanted their kids to do that in California, and you could do that kind of stuff all year. So it, it worked out really well, and we made a lot of good friends doing that. Um, but the, the training, so to speak, was uh, was was just you know, my parents would like essentially have us play games in the form of exercise. Uh-huh. Um, like I don't know whether it was steal the bacon and cross country, you know, we'd run, we'd run three miles or two miles or whatever, come back and then play 30 minutes of steal the bacon where there's like two teams. There's a baton in the middle. You call a number, you run, grab the baton before the other team can tag you basically. And 
you basically just play that for like 30 minutes or an hour and like you'd smoke yourself, but it was essentially like sprint interval training. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Uh, and how about, I mean, do you think, <laughs> I think of, okay, as any parent, they, they want their kid to get into whatever they're going to get into. Like, you know, I say, and I mean it, whether my children become cyclists or become violinists or artists or they're into academia, like whatever it is, you just want your kid to be happy. Mm-hmm. There is also, you know, where I and my wife enjoy things, it's riding a bike. And so naturally the kids will either, you know, they're especially at the age where they see us riding a bike and they're like, oh, we want to go ride a bike too. There's got to be a, a cool aspect that your parents presented this to you and that you guys continued to pursue it. Was there ever a standoffish moment where you're like, I don't want to do the sports and my parents do? No, not really. They always told us that we could do whatever we had the most fun doing. Uh-huh. And they, I mean, my, my parents, they really helped me along when I was really enjoying basketball. Um, they, my mom talked to the, the assistant coach of the basketball team at the community college she taught at and like got me like had him give me like private lessons after school to try to like get some, like just develop my abilities. But <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I just wasn't as good at like stick and ball sports. So naturally I was just having more fun in the sports that I was more successful in. Sure. And that always just happened to be running and biking, swimming. And I think it was just a happy coincidence that, uh, that, that that's the way it worked out yeah. at least for my parents, because they always wanted me to do that kind of stuff, but they always told me that I could do whatever I wanted and they would just let me do whatever I wanted. But yeah. I think you're, you're right that the kids, they always are going to sort of naturally attract towards the activities that the parents are doing and what they see their parents enjoying doing. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's just, maybe that's just always how it works out. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Switching. Well, I mean, certainly staying on the topic of family, my understanding is you didn't really lead with with this until it became publicized in, in racing the tour and having success in the tour. You were the first tribally recognized Native North American to race in the Tour de France um, mm. with 25%, is it Oneida heritage? Do I pronounce that right? Uh, Oneida. Oneida. Um, from, a, from a literal sense, what does that meant? to you having native American heritage, like what experiences did you have with your family or an extended family growing up? Yeah. I mean, you kind of touched on it a little bit. Um, this definitely wasn't anything that I brought to light on my own. This is something that other people just found and went after. And yeah, it is kind of unique and that's, it is really interesting. Um, and it's, it's, it's been part of my life off and on in the sense that I've had, I have family on the reservation in Wisconsin and, um, we would grow up going to visit the reservation, but I was also very removed from, um, from, from the tribe growing up, unless it was the odd summer to visit my grandpa. Uh And I think it's really more a testament to my, my, my dad, my, my mom and dad, um, my dad, especially having, um, you know, climbed out of the place that he was that he was in growing up and being able to raise a family raise kids that have reached this level i guess like about the highest level you can find you get to and and um a lot of people would say a privileged sport and i think that's honestly more the story people should maybe look at as opposed to my own because by the time i was old enough to realize it um my dad and my mom had both already created such an environment for my sister and I that was just amazing. It was very, we were, we were very lucky to grow up and, um, you know, have access to, to bikes and, you know, not because my parents could really afford to just buy us bikes all the time, but they were able to create a community and get involved in a community that, that, that helps support that and find sponsors for us and, um, just, yeah, find ways to make it happen for us. So, um, I hope it's an inspiring story that uh, there is a, that it's, you know, that it's the first of 
of, of, a, of a group of people that um, don't have a lot of resources at their disposal. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's not something that I'm, that I'm trying to say like, Oh, look what I've overcome and done. It's, it's, I, I still have, you know, as good of an opportunity as anybody from a very young age to succeed in, in cycling. Yeah. Well, yeah, shoot. That's, that speaks to your parents support as much as, as anything. Um, are you familiar with the work? Do you know, Scott Nidham, Californian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's doing some incredible stuff. I saw the documentary that, that he has, that was produced about him, about bringing bikes to, uh, I want to say a reservation in Northern New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, but an absolutely incredible, I mean, it speaks to what a bicycle can do. You see it over the course of the, the video, just what, uh, the, the power of bicycles. And, you know, I think your sister yeah. has started a organization, similar thing, not mm-hmm. just bicycles, just the power of athletics and the ability to move and, and if it's not introduced to you, then where else do you get it? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. Switching gears back to career. Now it was eight years ago, 2016, you had mentioned some success in tour California. Um, I'm going to run through some, some of my due diligence. You got overall at Joe Martin, you win a stage of Lavenier stage of Bose. You win U23 nationals the next year. Fast forward a little bit. You also win Japan cup. GP Marseille, Visage, fifth of the world championships. Uh, you start doing well in classics. I can go on and on here. Oh, also, and if things had gone a little bit differently, I think you would have won Big Sugar 2021 by about 15 minutes. <laughs> you're, you're dabbling in gravel, had a mechanical, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I was so, so bonked by the end of that race. <laughs> oh, man, that was so hard. <laughs> that was hilarious. What, that was just on the heels of fifth at worlds is that right yeah yeah um i i had just come back from europe a few weeks prior yeah um, and um yeah the the team had, had 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 mentioned it to me and they told me they would give me a bike if i wanted to do it and, yeah um and i thought i was going to get to keep the bike which was the main draw for it but <laughs> unfortunately i had to give it back and so you know i lost the race and i lost the bike yeah so. <laughs> Uh, that's where you just need to subtly just forget where the bike went. Like, it, it was lost in transit. It's in my garage. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so looking at those results, plenty of cyclists would call those career-defining into themselves. From outward appearances, your career is still very much on the up and up. How? The question being, how do you measure progress over the passage of time? How do you, for yourself, how do you measure progress? Um. I mean, there's, I think there's two ways. Um, one, the obvious way is just you know, power numbers. How, how is your body improving in training? Um, but, you know, at the same time, there's a lot of people that have just crazy numbers. And I think, you know, <laughs> at, if, you, if you go to any world tour training camp, the room's filled with crazy power numbers. But, you know, only a few of those guys are going to end up winning races. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the truest barometer for, for progression is just, how comfortable you feel making the final in races and whether you're sort of continuously finding yourself in groups of 10 to 20, uh, at the end of hard races. And then from there, are you able to, to do anything from that group? And over time, it's just felt like more and more often I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself in that position and, um, figuring out ways to, to take advantage of those situations. And, that's when bike racing gets so much fun. Um, just, yeah, the first time you find yourself in a, a small group in a big race with options of, you know, thinking about attacking, just, just even having the mental capacity to, capacity to think about like, wow, this race has been very selective and, and I think I'm going to give it a go. Like that's, that's mm-hmm. an incredible feeling. Um, and the more often that happens, the more addicted you get to it. And, um, yeah, that's just probably the biggest barometer for improvement is just how often you find yourself at the front of, um, the final and big races and how often that happens. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Uh, it's, it's certainly a hammer or nail situation. 
You know, it's, mm-hmm. the, the majority of the Peloton is a nail, just getting nailed, hit time, yeah. time and again. So <laughs> yeah. it's cool at the end yeah. to have that kind of ability to be, to be questioning that about yourself. So obviously your fitness is improving. You're learning. You're going to learn a lot purely with experience in the, in the in the Peloton, which you've got no shortage of now. The EF team is inarguably stronger than ever before. What is what is the ceiling, or even is there a ceiling where you can look back at a particular season, or maybe a particular result, or even back on the whole expanse of your career and say, like proudly, yeah, I did it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think uh, a stage of the Tour de France is kind of a big whale. It's like, yeah. It's the one that, you know, I, I got into cycling because I dreamt of the Tour de France. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, when I was like eight, I wanted to win the Tour de France. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at this point, I would, yeah, I want to win a stage. <laughs> um, if I can win a stage, that would be, that would be amazing. It's just kind of the, that would just make me feel like I've had a successful career and accomplished the dream that I set out to accomplish. So, uh-huh. um, that would about that would about do it um but you know i think there's there's plenty of other ways i could be satisfied with my career but um the one that would top them all is just winning a stage of the tour yeah yeah that makes a heck of a lot of sense um so looking at that list of palmares that i mentioned and then plenty more where do you see your skill set um because you've got quite the mix of results and like you alluded to at the top of the the conversation it's a little bit of everything. Like there's one day races, results in stage races, grand tours. I mean, you're, you're as of recently putting in results in the classics. What do you think you are most suited towards? Um, I'd say races of attrition at this point. Um, I think power numbers have been improving over the last few years and training peaks, but, um, I haven't been crushing them as drastically as you do when you're younger, you know, you, your improvements sort of start to taper. Um, but the freshness I feel at the end of hard races has improved drastically over the last three, four years. Um, and just being able to reproduce high, high intensive, high intensity efforts after five or six hours of racing. Um, and I think that's really been a target for me over the last two years. And especially this year now, I'm only doing one world tour stage race before, um, I think Swiss. So I'm only doing one this spring, um, I'm racing two stage races, but one is sort of a prep race to two point pro. Um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, just Tirreno, but then basically I'm just kind of going after every one day race that I can, that I can do. Uh-huh. Um, so I'll do about, I'll do Strada Bianchi. I'll race Milan San Remo. I'll race E3. I'll race Dwarzdor Blondren. I'll race the Ronde van Blondren. I'll race Amstel Flesh and Liege. Um, as long as I stay healthy through all that, uh, that'll be the plan. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a big battle is staying healthy. But <laughs> um, yeah, if I can stay healthy and do all those races, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, it'll work out for me one of these days. Yeah. Well, yeah, I love it. That's a, that's a noteworthy race calendar and I will enjoy watching it. Um, I don't, I don't want to put a timeline on it per se, but let's say a while ago, riders were much more specialized, right? You had climbers, you had sprinters, you had time trialists, and then you had a, a mix of domestiques. And now I want to, I feel like it's sort of this mix of specialists and not quite all arounders, but riders who are capable of scoring results in all types of races. Now, you're still pretty young. I think 27 years old. You've been a professional for half a dozen years or more now. What What are the changes that you are seeing happen in your time in the sport? For example, how riders approach their their place in the peloton without the specialization uh, per se. Yeah, yeah. Um, the biggest change has been um, where the final starts. <laughs> yeah. Um, races are just exploding. So, so far out now. Um, 
last year I was fifth in Flanders and I attacked with a hundred K to go. And that was the group. I mean, a couple guys caught us from behind Vanderpool and Tade and Ben art. And that was it. It was the only three guys that caught us. Yeah. Um, and world championships, same thing, 120 K to go. I attacked and, um, if it weren't for a crash, I would have been in the group with, with Vanderpool today and wow. Um, but that's just the way racing is going now. It's just, you have to be so switched on from a lot further out because favorites aren't afraid of attacking really early on. Um, and I think that's also why you're seeing less specialized riders because to begin racing from a hundred K out, you still have to be good at everything. Right, right. <laughs> um, you have to be able to climb, you climb, you have to be durable. You have to be able to sprint because if the race is exploding from that far out, um, there is a good chance that it'll be a small group at, at the finish line. Um, but yeah, there's also equal, equal chance that you will be able to win that whoever wins will win solo. So you have to be a pretty darn good time trialist too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you just have to be basically good at everything. At least that's the way it's going in the classics. Uh -huh. Um, which is why, you know, me at 67 kilos racing in, in Flanders, I feel very comfortable pushing my way around because, um, you know, I think the, that the, the big quote unquote classic style riders, um, are getting fewer and far between, um, because those guys are typically the, the explosive riders that would, that would be able to have such a punch in the last, um, you know, hour or two of racing that, sure. um, those are, the, those are the only guys that can match those explosive efforts. But now with, with moves, dangerous moves going three, four hours from the line, um, you just have to be quick and being, having the, the best max power in the Peloton matters a lot less. Yeah. Oh, it's so fascinating to watch and I'm so thankful I'm not in it anymore. Uh, it's just, it's very fun. <laughs> it's fun watch. though. I mean, it, it's very, it's fun. Like, because it, it gets a lot less stressful earlier on, you know, sure. once the, as soon as the group is small, it's, it's really just like race tactics, not life risking. Right. Up until that point, it just, it feels like I'm just risking my life all the time. Yeah. But as soon as that selection gets made, it's like, Ooh, okay. Now it's just the effort. No more like stress really. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, I still remember the days of, you know, two hours of early breakaways trying to go. And that's, that's not hair raising because you're in the position of, you know, in the front and trying to launch attacks. The impression from my perspective is that you're racing from the go. There's very little of that lull where the breakaway goes in the first 30 minutes, whatever it is. Do you have, do you feel like you've seen that change also in terms of the pace of the Peloton or has it just always sort of been the case since your time in the Peloton that racing starts pretty darn early on? Um, it's, it's, I've noticed a change with that as well. Um, there's definitely still, there are still a lot of races where it's the very standard format. Um, I think Milan San Remo will sort of always be that way. Sure. Um, unless, unless it's a crazy windy, you know, there's crosswinds for five hours. Yeah. <laughs> that would be, uh, that would be hell, but, um, and then, you know, sprint stages in the tour, uh, again, unless it's windy, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that's still a very straightforward way of, of racing. Uh, and I will say those days are incredible when they happen <laughs> because it's very pleasant and uh -huh. it's, it's actually a very nice opportunity to go and chat with some guys on the other team. Sure. Um, some, some former teammates or other Americans on other teams, but, um, but yeah, that definitely doesn't happen that often because the race starts, breakaway forms. Most of the time, you'd have about 20, 30 minutes and then, you know, time to focus. Sure. <laughs> uh, so that's just enough for a pee break, get some food, and then, uh -huh. yeah, get, get back with your team. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. If, from the, you know, you, you switch on the TV and there's a sprint stage and, and then, you turn it on two hours in and things are going ballistic. I feel mm. like maybe those are just the most memorable ones. And then a standard sprint stage is sort of boilerplate and boring, but I, I feel like things are thrown on their head more often than not. It's like, Oh, well what should be a normal stage is not. 
and who knows what that's caught, you know, is that because of the high demand for UCI points or a, plenty of teams going into the tour with zero ambition and therefore they have to keep, keep the action high? I don't know. Um, any perspective? I think there? it's a vicious, yeah, I think it's a vicious cycle of a few things. I think one is that the speed in races is very high. Um, teams have made so much progress in rolling resistance, aerodynamics, um, learning how to play with the peloton a little bit if you're in front of the race. So increasingly, it's been getting harder and harder to pull back riders who have gotten in front of the race. Yep. I mean, in the, in the tour last year, I think there was a breakaway that never got more than two minutes for a 200K stage, That's and they won. Crazy. And it's not because they were really pulling very hard all day, but it was a bit of a cross tailwind and in the Peloton, it was pretty easy, but by the time the Peloton decided they needed to catch them, they, they, they basically just matched the same speed in the front that the Peloton had. Sure. And nobody, it was just a stalemate. And because of that, the Peloton has been keeping breakaways closer and closer, which, <laughs> which opens, which, which leaves more opportunity to attack from the Peloton to bridge across. So, it's sort of a vicious cycle. You need to keep the Peloton, you need to keep the breakaway close because it's very hard to pull anyone back these days. But if you keep it too close, then it's just going to create even more chaos by riders knowing they might be able to jump across to that breakaway. Yep. Yep. So it's a very, very fine line and it's getting, it's getting almost impossible to, to, to do it right. <laughs> it becomes such a calculation. Uh, and yeah, I can't imagine being a sports director. I feel like the job of the sports director has gotten much more involved, much more exciting, as opposed to just being a taxi driver. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if, there, if there's like a, a headwind on a flat, straight road sprint stage, I think that's a long day in the car for the directors. But <laughs> Yes, there are plenty of parts of the job of a director that I don't envy, uh, largely yeah. in time management, but... Anyway, it's crazy how much time they spend in the car, though, on training camps and races like, yeah, like at training camp in January, they're spending, you know, six, seven hours in the car every day. Uh huh. That is that's insane. Uh huh. <laughs> no, the, I remember those days as a rider. And like, that's what made me want to stop. Right. I mean, ironically, now I'm doing races that are that long, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm just sort of tired of spending so much time doing this anyway. Um. <laughs> So what's fun about cycling and being an American cycling fan is that the lineup of riders is small enough that we can refer to them by their first names and, and people will know who I'm talking about. And so if I say to other cycling fans, TJ, Brent, Ian, Joe, American cycling fans know who I'm talking about. And maybe that extends to other mm -hmm. sports. Like if I say LeBron, people will know who I'm talking about. But staying on that theme with the first name thing, I think that continues today. So talking about current American cyclists, if I say something like Mateo, Sepp, obviously your name in this lineup, Lawson, Brandon, Quinn, people know who I'm talking about. So this is sort of a two-part question, and the first is going to ask your, your cycling how much of a student of the sport you are. Do you think this generation, your generation, is, is stronger than, than recent American cohorts? You mean just in raw power? Are we stronger than the previous generation? Um, or relatively? Maybe, I mean, maybe not in terms of raw power, like if you were to go do a, a FTP test, because I feel like there's so much maximalization that is happening there. <laughs> um, and I'm not trying to throw shade at the, at the generation of Dombrowski's, Bookwalters, Talansky's. Like those people would occasionally nab results and, and some very timely victories. But I feel like. Mm -hmm. At a younger age, Americans right now are doing quite well. And that's just my perception. Do you feel that? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think in a lot of ways, I, I'm still trying to live up to the previous generation because, I mean, you know, Talansky's won the Dauphiné and TJ's finished top five in the tour mm -hmm. and... Um, Taylor Finney was just out of this world when he was on BNC. And, mm -hmm. um, but I guess 
at a more consistent level. I mean, yeah, Seth won a Grand Tour last year. Um, decent. <laughs> that's pretty decent. Yeah, yeah, pretty decent. Uh, um, I would say, like, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 hard to say because it's. I feel like those guys are also sort of my idols in the sport. Um, guys that I really looked up to and um, thought, you know, you know, one day it would just be cool to be like riding next to them, sort of thing. Sure. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say Americans are pretty consistent, pretty consistently at the top in a pretty much in pretty much every race they enter, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's not a lot of American pack fodder, and I'm not saying there is among other nationalities, but when you show up at the Giro, there are dozens of Italians, right? There are mm. dozens of yeah. French riders, and then in the whole world tour peloton, there's only so many Americans. So. Mm. Um, I mean, what do you suppose, what do you suppose explains the success with these young Americans? Because I feel like, especially right now, it's, it's all the more difficult to get a foothold in American racing, you know, like domestic racing is, is Mm. virtually non-existent and, and Mm -hmm. maybe you're at the very tail end of that. And therefore the result of the Hagen Bermans, Hagen's Bermans allowed that opportunity but not, you know, a Mateo didn't race with, with Hoggins Berman. So do you see anything that's mm-hmm. explaining the success of these, these young riders? I mean, Quinn, geez, he did pretty <laughs> darn well at a junior level to go straight to the world tour. Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure. I mean, I think it's part of it's a natural ebb and flow. Um, I think that one thing that sort of defines Americans is the move we make to, to Europe and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sacrifice of the comforts that we are leaving behind. And I think that that's, it's a bit of a, a tightrope because you part of some, I think a lot of pressure comes along with that to be the most successful cyclist possible be this like be a cyclist that wins races because otherwise why would you have sacrificed all that um just to sort of suffer in races (laughs) um but yeah i don't know i mean i will say racing is a lot more fun when you're at the front (laughs) um first few years i had a really rough go of it and thought i made the wrong decision (laughs) but as soon as i started racing well and found myself in the front a few times that sort of fueled my fire kept me going and and now i'm in a really good place but um yeah i think i can only really speak for myself and the success that i've had is just that you know i I was motivated by what i sort of had to leave to, to to get here and um yeah provide for my wife and my daughter now and um that sort of really drove me to be to just try to get better, better and better. And, um, and it's, yeah, sort of pushed me to where I'm at today. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a tough question though. I mean, if I had an answer, I would, I would, I would give you one. Um, I just had some, some awesome opportunities, I think to race with Hoggins Berman, the national team. And, um, Mateo was, was just very committed to, um, you know, moving himself to Europe. And I think growing up in a fairly international family, like he, he had already lived abroad a few times when he was younger, mm-hmm. um, probably helped him along in the choices he was making. The sense he could already speak a bit of Spanish, I think before he moved to Europe and, um, yeah. And then Quinn, he's just, he was developed quite early and is just an incredible athlete and was able to make a big jump straight from juniors, which was um, impressive. But I mean, I think America just has incredible athletes. It's just, there's not always up. Those athletes just aren't always involved in cycling, but um, if there were, if, if cycling was as commonplace in America as it was in, in Italy or, or Belgium, then we'd probably be the most dominant country in the world. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's fascinating. We live in such a 
participatory society. Like if you want to play any sport, you just go do that sport. And certainly mm-hmm. as you, to your point, when you, when you have success, you tend to stay in it longer, but it's not a state sponsored system. Like there are in other countries where they, they vet the best, best athletes and say, Oh, you have a mm-hmm. enormous VO two as a 12 year old. So let's, let's continue to put this <laughs> in this pipe in your pipeline. Um, yeah. And how about if you look at the, the greater world tour Peloton and the, the advent of technology and, and maximizing every little minuscule piece of it, aerodynamics, nutrition, so on and so forth. Do you think we're at an early phase of it? Do you think we're, we're cruising through it? Do you think there's, there, we're approaching a point that we're not going to be able to get large gains do you know what I mean? Like sports always progress. And so in 50 years, I feel like we're going to be, oh yeah. Remember that time where we're basically racing in the antiquated period in 2024. <laughs> Do you see a lot of envelope pushing right now? Um, I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, every year, our equipment gets faster. Um, we, our team rolls out a new type of tire compound for the tour every year. And sometimes every six months, like we get one start of the year, they say the fastest thing ever. And then, you know, three months later they say, Oh, here's the new fastest thing ever. Um, a lot of that is sort of beyond me and I just let it develop beyond behind the scenes. And I just focus on my body and getting faster and, um, just, be confident that I have a team of people around me that are focusing on the rest of it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think just in cycling, we have a lot of sponsors and a lot of different pieces of equipment coming together to make impact on our performance. Like, you know, Pac has, um, Pac makes our helmets and our glasses and they're making, you know, aero helmets for road races now and glasses that, that change the, the, the turbulence around your ears and just stuff like that. So they're working on the head part and then Rafa is the clothing sponsor. So now they're making, you know, skin suits for road races and long sleeve road racing suits and double layer this and that. And that's focusing on the, the, the clothing aspect. And then, you know, Cannondale does the frames. Um, they're always, you know, they have frames in the works that are being kind of going to be coming out you know, four years from now, sure. like they've already talked to us about them. We won't have them for four years, but you know, it's coming and you know, they're going to be a lot faster than what we have now. Uh-huh. And that's just a true across the board. Every sponsor we have is, is, is saying that they're still able to make big improvements just with essentially time and, and money. So, yeah, I mean, I don't even know where to begin to think about where we'll be in 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, every year it seems like somebody's found us another 20 watts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Collectively, um, you add all the watts together and you can basically coast because everybody saved you eight watts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy when that, that's why I just sort of leave it to the sponsors and our, our equipment suppliers to focus on making us faster because obviously they're going to look better if we go faster. So. I just have to let that all develop and I will just focus on getting my body more fit. <laughs> yeah. Which, which makes me think of two things. One, yeah, you can only control the things within your arm's reach. Nutrition being one of them. It's so funny. Just the, the evolution of nutrition in the past, call it half dozen years, right? We were talking about the benefits of ketosis and not having carbohydrates a handful of years ago. And now all of a sudden everybody's shoveling down, two and a half times the carbs that they were eating seven years ago. So just how quickly that evolution happens. Mm-hmm. You are also, yeah, you mentioned each of those sponsors, which end up kind of siloed, right? Like the the clothing is its own thing and the helmet is its own thing. So it's almost like mm-hmm. when those companies start working together and Pac has a helmet that is built into your Rafa clothing. Like it sounds totally ridiculous (laughs) what you picture in your mind, but yeah, who knows in in 30 years, that's complete cockpit. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean that, that crazy big Darth Vader helmet that that Pac makes like if that thing, because the biggest issue with that is just if you move your head up 
uh-huh. a tiny bit. Basically, every error gain is lost. Huh. Every error gain that you've made over the past 5K could be lost in like 200 meters if you just like put your head up. Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, maybe there just needs to be some sort of a latch or a pocket to fit that yeah. tail into. But that'd probably make a big difference. So, racing at this level is not easy. Moving to the other side of the, not quite the other side of the world, but moving across the pond is not easy. Uh, you're doing it now with dependents among you. How do you reset? How do you rest and recharge? Uh, at the end of the night, once Charlotte's asleep, just a glass of wine in the office with my wife. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> just some, uh, some good old fashioned office and, uh, office and vino. <laughs> I love it. That's it's like, the new uh, so that's the winning show. combo office and vino. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, sweet. Okay. Well, nearing an hour, I end with three traditional questions. Beginning with, what is your favorite place to ride a bike? What is the number one place that you would like to ride that you've never ridden? And number three, with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? So, favorite place to ride a bike. (laughs) Um, Yeah, favorite place to ride a bike is probably around the Italian-French border here in in Nice, just, uh, just north of menton um yeah it's pretty wild how 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 quickly the the terrain changes as soon as you cross from france into italy yeah and then and then you're just fully in italy just like standing espresso bars and crostato stands and uh-huh. everything it's it's really cool um yeah that's that's probably my favorite yeah it's kind of why we moved here too it's just we had a choice to go just about anywhere and yeah yeah picked a good place <laughs> that's a great answer uh you've certainly ridden your bike in a lot of places my answer is japan but you've got that one checked off what is the number one place that you would like to ride you've never ridden who um yeah J- japan was really really cool um um place i'd like to ride never ridden columbia I've I had never to been check that. To, I was uh, like, "Oh man, are you racing Tour yeah. Columbia?" Okay, very good. Yeah, I actually was 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 originally scheduled for it, but um, I requested fewer travel days, so <laughs> uh, ended up changing things around. But I, I would like to go one year. It's just this year was a little bit too too early with a little baby. <laughs> yeah, reasonable. Um, and with whom would you like to go share a bike ride? And it doesn't have to be for the first time. So anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's man, that's such a hard question. That's like who would you like to go to dinner with? Exactly. Like dead or alive. Like uh-huh. yeah. Oh man. Um <laughs> This is such a hard question. I I don't know. I mean I I mean, I want to say somebody like Eddie Merckx, but then I'm kind of like, I don't even know what I would talk to him about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um well, how about, okay, you have infinite wishes. <laughs> you could have this theoretical dinner, but then the next day, like, who's a, who's a top 10 nominee? You can um, go with Eddie Merckx. That'd be a fascinating one. You can be like, Eddie, what was, Yeah. what's Axel like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'd like to go on a ride with Eddie Merckx. Um, that'd be, that'd be. That'd be cool. Um, I feel like it'd be it'd be nice to learn some things and just listen to him talk about the good old days. I feel like any basically anybody from yeah from you know cycling back in um, I don't know like the sixties, seventies, eighties. That would just be so so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just even even hearing about even when I spend a bit of time with TJ, like every every any time I go on a ride with TJ or go have a coffee with TJ, it's like. He's just got the craziest stories from the nineties and early two thousands. It's just like, yes, basically just anybody from, from that era. Really? I mean, yeah, we, I would, I would, I'd probably go into the ride the stipulation and just like pretend doping didn't exist and just like, tell me like the, <laughs> the wild stuff that cyclists used to get into. Cause uh-huh. yeah, you hear just 
<laughs> it's so entertaining. It, it just feels like cycling was the Wild West back in the early 2000s and 90s. It's just yeah, I was about to say yeah. the cowboy era. <laughs> yeah. Well, sweet Nielsen, I am appreciative of your time. I I know it's not the easiest thing, especially with a child probably one room over. So. Yeah, thank you very much for the time. Thanks yeah. for the insight. Uh, wish you a great yeah. deal of luck the season ahead. Thanks, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks very much for listening. Thanks again, Nielsen. Again, check out Gravel Kings, our new podcast. Heck, hit that subscribe button right from the get-go just because that would really help get this ball rolling. It would mean a lot to me. It would mean a lot to Laura. It would mean a lot to Stu. Thanks again. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.